Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. On X Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next next hunt try onyx hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code meat eater for 20 percent off your new elite membership this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless we hunt the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right. Um, our very special guest, Kelly Ralston. Hello. Uh, my first question for you, it's like, a, it's like a structural question. Do you think I should ask you first to explain... The ASA, or should I ask you first to explain the Everglades? Well, ASA would be a lot easier, so maybe we'll go with that one. Okay, so within that, <laughs> keep Florida fishing, mm-hmm. like roll that into it. Okay, so I am work for the American Sport Fishing Association. We are a trade association for the sport fishing industry, and so our members range from um, tackle retailers, tackle manufacturers, um, clothing, eyewear, uh, boat manufacturers, pretty much anything associated with sport fishing industry. Retailers um, are, are our members. Um, ASA also puts on ICAST, which is the world's largest sport fishing trade show every July here in Orlando. So would welcome you all back to Florida if you want to make another trip coming up this summer. Um because of the importance of Florida to the sport fishing industry. It's it the is, most fishing state, right? It is. It's the fishing capital of the world. And so, um, you know, we have our industry has a huge investment in this state. And we wanted to make sure that we ensured that for the industry moving forward. And so um, we started the Keep Florida Fishing Initiative, I guess, about 
two and a half years ago. That's about how long I've been with ASA to really focus on Florida-specific issues. So our motto is um, abundant fisheries, clean water, and access to both for Florida anglers um, and our industry. So how, how many states get a how many states get to keep X fishing? Well, you know, as special as Florida is, we are the only one at this point. We also have a Keep America Fishing Advocacy Program. But at, Florida at was so sort so of special. important and so complex. Yeah. You guys had to set up shop in Florida. Yeah, it's um, it's a $9.6 billion industry in the state, 128,000 jobs, and that's just within the state. So a lot of our industry, um, their sales are really important here, but manufacturing takes place across the country. So from a nationwide perspective, for the sport fishing industry, Florida is extremely important. Um, you're gonna hate this. <laughs> who are the like? Who are your enemies? Yeah, that's a that's like you're not gonna want, you're gonna reframe the question, but you know what I'm saying like so you have you have a like, and I'm not talking about on the Florida sense, but on the national scale, not your enemies. But what do you when you look in if if the association looks and says okay, we want to like promote the industry, promote fishing. Where do you wind up having friction? Like, where does the friction occur? Because well, I think that on the surface, everyone's going to be like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Let's go fish. Yeah, of course. I like fishing. Um, I would say it really depends on the issue, quite okay. frankly. Um, different issues you're in um, agreement with different folks on. Um, a lot of the federal fisheries management issues, which is where we have been focused uh, primarily at the national level, tend to... Um, involve environmental groups and commercial fishing um, because okay. it's all about dividing up kind of the allocation that that you're given for a particular fishery particularly red snapper you may have heard of um, so that one's probably uh, more controversial but there are other instances uh, California salmon where we are actually working closely with environmental groups to ensure um, that there's enough available water for salmon in the state and that's more of like a farmer versus uh, fish type setup Gotcha. Um, because water's in such short, short supply out there. So when all of the, just, I'm just talking like high level general, when there's a fisheries issue and all of the stakeholders, uh, that's the term you get you hear all the time, all of the stakeholders come to the table. Recreational fishing is one of those. And oftentimes you will find that also seated at the table would be commercial fishing industry and the environmental movement yeah and i think a lot of that goes back to how federal fisheries management was established in this country with the magnus and stevens act and that was originally intended well first it was originally intended to deal with international fishing in um, united states waters but after that it morphed into addressing overfishing in the commercial industry okay and so that's where a lot of the regulations that we have right now um are. They're, they're focused on commercial fishing, which if you think about it, it's really an entirely different activity than recreational fishing. I mean, yes, you want to go out and encounter a fish, which is what a commercial person wants to do, but they need to encounter a lot of them in a short period of time. And they're trying to harvest every one that they see. From a recreational perspective, you know, it's more about uh, relationships with people that you're going out on the water with. It's more about the experience of being out there and fishing. And so Yes, there is harvest involved um, in, for some species more than others, um, but it's, it's an entirely different approach. And so 
the big issue for us at the federal level has been trying to kind of modernize the way um, recreational fishing is managed because the commercial paradigm does not work well for saltwater uh, recreational fishing. So freshwater is a whole different story. That one's typically very well done, but the Magnuson-Stevens Act... Um, yeah, because there's, there's not a huge commercial fishing footprint in... Right. I mean, there's some, you know, obviously in the, some minor amount in the Great Lakes and some in the Mississippi drainage, but generally not. Like when I think about that, sort of that the, the two paradigms or the, the two, like the recreational commercial relationship, I'd be like when we're out fishing in our skiffs in southeast Alaska, right? And you're out fishing on a sport fishing license and you're allowed whatever, you know, like a couple salmon or sometimes one salmon of a particular species, but you're honestly fishing where, where you could converse right with purse saners who are you know using a hydraulic winch to haul out you know, to and you're haul. like i feel very inadequate here like, <laughs> i get it you compare like one of their hauls with your <laughs> lifetime of bag limits and realize that like if you if you got your limit every day all season for your lifetime you wouldn't achieve one basket full of fish and you know yeah and, and i'm not trying like i'm not trying to to criticize what I'm saying, it winds up being like it's like this funny juxtaposition to be like sitting in a boat comparing the two, you know, the footprints of each. Well, and I think that's that's true, um, especially in certain fisheries where there is a very large commercial element. And Alaska is a prime example of that. We have a lot of mixed use fisheries, um, particularly down here in the southeast, and then we have some that are almost exclusively recreational. So it does skew both ways. Um, but to kind of bring it back around to, um, you know, who's at the table, I think the commercial industry um, is very comfortable with the Magnuson-Stevens Act where it is, and rightfully so. It's done a really good job of bringing back um, a lot of fisheries that were in trouble, and we're in a good place as far as our fish stocks in most cases uh, nationwide. Um, you know, the issue comes when you look at kind of the poster child of federal fisheries management, which is red snapper, which is a mixed fishery. It's almost 50-50 split in the allocation between commercial and recreational. Oh, and, I didn't know that, really. Yep. So there is a, so in that case, there's a significant impact from, from recreational fishing. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you look at it and the recreational, private recreational anglers had a, initially a three-day season, federal season last year. Now, there's other factors that go into why that was a three-day season. Like Joe Blow with a fishing license had a three-day season. If he wants to go out fishing in federal waters, which is where the larger snapper are. So what has happened is the states have tried to compensate for some of that because they have jurisdiction over their waters. So they've opened longer, progressively longer and longer state seasons to compensate for the increasingly shorter and shorter federal seasons. And we're, we're actually, we've actually been a victim of our own success because as red snapper have continue to rebound and increase in size and in number, we meet the quota faster because we're able to just go out and pick them out of the water. Um, okay. And so trying to look at ways to balance that is one thing. But anyway, so back to the issue. So that's Real that's, quick, though, what the, designates the state-controlled water versus federal waters? So um, it's nine miles out uh, is state waters Gulf-wide now. Um, and then beyond that is the EEZ out to 200 miles, which is federal jurisdiction. So how does that work as like leaving Florida aside, just so people can understand, if you just imagine sort of like the, the, the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, what is like just generally there, at what point does state regulated water turn into federal regulated water? Um, on the, I know, I'm not sure about Pacific. I, I would assume it's similar to the Atlantic, which is three miles out. Once you take your boat three miles out, you're in federal, federal waters. waters. Yep. 
So, but anyway, back, so Mag, back to Magnuson. So it's done a really great job on the commercial side, um, addressing their issues. They're very comfortable with it. From a recreational side, we have some challenges, and I think there needs to be some additional flexibility in management there. And so that's been one of the big issues that we have been, um, we have brought to the table. Um, and, and Congress appears to be um, interested and, and poised to take action. Um, so fingers crossed so we can see some significant changes. There's some other things that they're working on in the Gulf. Um, that NOAA Fisheries um, is working on with the, the Gulf states to actually look at state management, turning over management of that nine to 200 miles over to the states and seeing what they can do with it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. They, they've just um, submitted, each of the states has submitted exempted fishing permits. Um, and this goes beyond, it's like Red Snapper, which is no, something... No, this, this is exclusively for Red Snapper, oh, kind of as a test Snapper. run okay. um, and and see how, how they do with that. Um, because I think... I think the states, especially from a recreational perspective, have a much closer relationship with anglers, and there's a lot more trust there. Um, and they've actually done a really great job managing their inshore fisheries. So um, this will kind of be a, a test run. And there's some amendments going through count, the council, the Gulf Council, to see if there's there are ways to do it permanently. So what are some other? Um, and I want to I do want to get back to what we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> but if you look, okay, so in the Gulf, like if you follow sort of the, the news around fisheries you do hear a lot about sort of the contest like a limited resource that has a lot of people wanting to make sure they're getting their fair share of it would be red sand or red snapper in the gulf in the pacific northwest people there's constant conflict around salmon resources okay so tribal commercial recreational like who make sure everybody jockeying to get what they feel is rightfully theirs what are other, besides those two sort of corners of the country, what are other species that kind of like generate that same, those same kind of tensions? I quite honestly can't think of any. We've had some issues in the South Atlantic with cobia recently, mainly due to um, trying to come up with better estimates of recreational harvest um, because a lot of the commercial fisheries have um, reporting requirements in place and recreational fishermen are a little bit more challenging to kind of pin down how much they're bringing so in. So like how much they're actually catching. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so actually the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council is uh, considering an amendment that would, similar to what we were talking about in the Gulf, that would turn over management of cobia to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is from Florida all the way up the coast. Um, and that's primarily because cobia are uh, a, a state water species almost exclusively. So, I mean, they're not out far. Not, not typically. Gotcha. Not typically. Okay, so that's the American Sport Fishing Association. Yes. Built into that is Keep Florida Fishing. Yes. Um, now, you can't talk about Florida fishing without talking about the Everglades, right? It's inseparable. It, well, you know, it's funny when I when I started this position, I thought, oh, I'll be doing fisheries issues, and um, and then we had the big rain event um, in January of 2016, and I was like, right, we still haven't fixed the Everglades, dang it, um, because it was a huge, huge deal. Um, we had, you know, guacamole, six inch thick blue green algae in um in our coastal estuaries as a result of discharges from lake okeechobee um, that affected tourism it affected habitat it affected fisheries not only in the estuaries but also um, in florida bay down in the keys so it is a south 
it's really a central and South Florida issue when you want to get down to it. And, so, and that's imp imp so important to our industry here in the state. So explain the rain event and then we'll back up and talk about just like How it Everglades works. in general. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm aware of this. I remember like it made national news. Mm -hmm. International news. International news. Yeah. So yeah. a ton of rain falls. Mm -hmm. And in the off season and the typically dry season. So we've had issues with discharges from Lake Okeechobee going back to the 80s and the 70s. Um, but it really came to a head that year because it was in January, which is typically a really dry month down here. And so all of the tourists that were down here, the snowbirds that were down here, um, saw what happened. And so it started out as freshwater discharges. You know what I realized? I got to interrupt you. Yeah, that's okay. Because I feel like people are not going to understand what we're okay. talking about. So there's a wet season and a dry season. No, I want to go back. Okay, you okay. let, <laughs> let me do another thing first. And, and you check me where I'm wrong on this. So everybody can picture the Florida Peninsula. There's a, like, kind of in the middle, up and down, there's a big, huge lake, which everybody's heard the word, most everybody's heard of Lake Okeechobee. Big, huge lake. There are rivers that flow. There are a number of primary rivers, right, that flow southward into Lake Okeechobee. Historically, when that lake would fill up, it would flow southward from there. And that, everything southward from there, where that overfill, where, where all that overspill would historically go is what we call the Everglades, right? This. Yeah, it actually really starts at Mickey Mouse, if you really want to get technical. So Orlando, um, there's a chain of lakes and the Kissimmee River and okay. all of that. It, it used to be a big floodplain, but now it's been very channelized. So the water comes in pretty quickly. They, they're almost finished with restoring the Kissimmee River because initially the, the Army Corps of Engineers, who is kind of the, the construction lead on all of this um, from start to finish, thought it'd be a good idea to straighten it out because that would be a lot easier to get to and from, right? Okay. Um, but then we found out that the water was just coming in way too quickly um, and causing even greater problems. So historically, it would kind of meander down this flowway of the Kissimmee River into shallow but huge Lake Okeechobee. It's over 700 square miles, but about nine feet average depth. So it's pretty shallow. Um, and you think of it kind of like a, a really shallow bowl. When it, would, when it would get filled up, the southern end of it, would just overflow and it'd be this huge sheet of water about six inches deep that would flow primarily south, but really it hooks kind of toward, it would hooked historically towards the Gulf side. And then and there was some that would come out like Miami. hundreds of miles wide, right? Yep. Yeah, it was, um, I want to say it was 4,000 square miles originally. And right now we have about half of that, a little bit less than half of that that's remaining. Um, so there's been this huge development, obviously along the southeast coast of Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Stewart, Florida, all of that has was historic Everglades as well. Okay. But it was on a higher ridge. Um, and then we've had agriculture south of the lake on the fertile uh, muck grounds that are down there um, as a result of the flooding. But yeah, it would take almost a year from the, for the water to get from Lake Okeechobee to Florida Bay. It was that slow moving. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So how like do, one how do you measure that? Sorry. <laughs> I, I did not do it. I am not a hydrologist, but that that's what I've been told. It would take a year. So wow. yeah, just like yeah, it's like trickling its way through. It's the ultimate ultimate filter, really. Um, and so then that fresh water would go into Florida Bay, which is so important for our marine uh, nurseries um, and fisheries. 
And you have everything from lobster to tarpon down there um, that use the inshore areas of Florida Bay as, as nurseries. Um, so it's a huge breeding ground um, and really, really important for our fisheries. So that okay, so, so that's how the system once functioned. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Decked Drawer Systems. Their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing. I have been using a deck system for years. I would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it. You can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. 
They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. I, I realize I'm throwing you off because I'm changing how I want to like do all this. That's okay. Okay. Cause, cause I feel I'm like, following you. But I, but I want I want to get to like what happens now when you get a ton of rain, which is becoming more important because we just had like a couple crazy hurricanes too. Yeah. So what was the big huge flood in the twenties, right? And it killed a bunch of people. Yeah. So well So what happened there? So maybe step back a little bit before that. Sure. So the development happened because of agriculture and because of population, right? People wanted to move to, to South Florida. Henry Flagler and his railroad, huge component of that. Let's bring them all south, drain out um, you know, the swamp and and have a great place for people to come and visit and recreate. Um and so south of the lake was this fertile muck ground. I think even the Seminole Indians, when they were kind of pushed into the Everglades, realized how fertile the land was there and used it for farming. Land that would periodically flood. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so originally, um, the two rivers that now connect to Lake Okeechobee that go to the east and the west, the Caloosahatchee's on the west and the St. Lucie's on the east, were not originally connected to Lake Okeechobee. And so that's how you ended up with that straight southern, well, relatively oh, straight okay. that's southern what I was, flow. That's what I wasn't clear on as I look at it and read about it. I wasn't, I was always wondering, like, how could one lake head rivers that flowed in three directions? But it didn't. No, it just went south. I yeah. got you. Yeah. So those rivers were just their own minor, they were their own minor drainages not connected to this primary flow. Exactly. And so, um, so anyway, back to the agriculture south of the lake. So people started farming there and they built a really kind of small earthen berm around the south side of the lake and a huge hurricane. Um, they think it was, you know, category five hit in 1928 and, and blew out that dike and thousands of people died south of the lake. Because they had built that berm. So they had found like a fertile, they had found a fertile floodplain. Right. Which was prone to periodic flooding. Set up shop there, moved in, built communities. And they're like, let's protect it from any kind of, to keep it dry, we'll put this dike up. Yep. And then all of a sudden, wham, the dike failed. Yep. The berm failed. So the core stepped in. And it killed thousands of people. Thousands. Um, the core stepped in and, and built the Herbert Hoover Dike. And it's still there today. Um, it's undergoing a rehabilitation. And, but there are still concerns about the stability of that dike. And that's why when we had Hurricane Irma this last fall, um, Governor Scott ordered a, an evacuation of those communities south of the lake for fear because we weren't sure exactly where it was going to go. Um, you know, and the projections were all that it was going to go straight up the middle of the state. It could cause it to fail. So it's a dike, which is like a... A big trench full of water or like a big like a canal it's and then it's more like, like a, a big a hill of water yeah it's more like a big huge tall hill um that they've built and so they're going around um and to rehabilitate well, so it's it not, and so, so it's not it's it. not canal along there it's no. just like a it's just a big it's a earthen berm it's or like what earth, you'd see on the mississippi river like an earthen dam yes. i got you okay yep yeah just made out of piled up dirt yeah so when they say fail, just that it would have rolled away, mm-hmm. watered. Much like over. what you saw in Houston um, with, uh, I can't remember the name of it out there, but there was one that you could just watch that failed um, as the, the waters rose. It was just too much pressure. So the core starts to get concerned when water levels in the lake go above 15 feet because that's kind of their key cutoff for, okay, if it goes above this, we need to start watching out 
for the dike and and how stable it is and and is it are we seeing any signs of failure there yeah so is that was that herbert hoover dike was that sort of like the first major kind of strike against the everglades was interrupting the southerly flow of water well that and tamiami trail i would say were the major um, major factors to begin with, and then the connection of the St. Lucie River and the Caloosahatchee River. Which are the east-west flowing rivers. Yes. yes. Okay, so so we have this lake that would traditionally flow south as this massive, sheet, shallow, six-inch sheet of water, and you block that flow. And so someone comes up with the idea, probably over generations, I imagine, let's dig in and send that water east and west yeah, in different river systems. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. I mean, the that the way the system was altered um, was intentionally to not send water south, and it was intentionally to send it out the two rivers yeah. to the east and the west. Um, that was the whole rationale. And at the time when the decision was made, I uh, I wonder if people even back then would say, but hey, what about the Everglades? Or was we, we had, as a nation, we hadn't really gotten around to the idea of grappling with like finiteness. I think, I think the perception, um, there's a really great book on this subject, by the way, um, called The Swamp. Okay. Um, that kind of gives a fabulous history of the Everglades. I think the mentality was more, you know, land ho, let's go yeah. develop. And, and I don't think there was a lot of thought to, um, you know, what, what long-term impacts there might be from all of this. Um, and it was more about public safety, water supply, agriculture, trying to develop, you know, the, the swamp of Florida. Right? And they hadn't really thought about anything like living within the ecosystem as part of safety. I don't think so. I think it, the perception was we're, we're just going to make it how we want it and, and it'll right. be fine. So what were, once you, once that flow was stopped, can you like kind of like quickly encapsulate sort of like what we began to lose? So in, in the sort of ecosystem that that water was coming through. Yeah. So areas that were historically wet um, got too dry or they would be too wet for too long at too high a level. So you start seeing um, vegetation changes. You start seeing um, exotics um, in the system, you start seeing pretty much an, an entire disruption of an ecosystem. I mean, you still you still see alligators, you still see bass, you still see deer and tree islands, um, but they're becoming fewer and fewer and more impacted. Um, you know, it's really I think on, on a if it's an average day, I think things are probably not too um, too impacted within the system, at least to, to you know, the average person's eye. It's when you have these um, unusual events, high water events, that you start to really see the stresses in the system and that it goes beyond the Everglades, um, out to the coasts, and down to the Keys. Okay, so now the real, the real rainy event of what, was it 2016? Yeah, so that was... Like the unusual super rain. Yeah. So, uh, and then we had the hurricanes of 2017. So 2016 was really interesting because we had the, the rainfall event in January, which the lake rose, um, I want to say it was close to 17 feet. So 
water is really? being discharged to the east and the west at maximum volume as quickly as possible to try and bring the lake levels down because any rain event can, can raise the lake level almost three feet. So that's why the core, particularly in the wet season, likes to have it lower so that they have some play in there in mm -hmm. case we have a hurricane or we have a tropical system that sits there for a little while so that they can manage that flow So in December that year, you could have been standing on dry ground. Um, yeah, At the end of January, you could have been, you could have been in 17 feet of water. Yeah, it, there's a huge fluctuation in the natural system there, and and what happened because it was in an off time, we had these habitat impacts, um, oyster die-offs, seagrass die-offs. Um, so there's freshwater inflows to the estuaries that aren't normal. So you basically have salinities dropping to zero um, on the coast because they're sending so much, much water east and west out of those rivers and you also have just the turbidity so the water's cloudy um you may have seen there's some great photos out there if you google them where you can kind of see this dark cloud of water coming out of the rivers um, into the estuaries and and that shades the seagrass that shades you know all of the um the sea life that's out there and really can impact um fishing and that's area. what does it, the shading yeah. Well, so so well. But, so then this, there's the second part. So so there's the impact from the freshwater. But I mean, all, like the, you have these species that are relying on. They're sensitive to how much salt's in the water. Yes, absolutely. It, it can't be too much. Can't be too little. Like like you know, like oysters being something that was like a brackish water species. Yeah, and they can take low salinity for a certain number of days. But once you get past that threshold, then they, they just can't survive. So you're pumping out so much fresh water that you're turning a saltwater body basically into a somewhat freshwater or freshwater body by just inundating it with so much exactly river water. And then the muddiness prevents sunlight from penetrating through. Mm -hmm. And so that has uh, that and the salinity impact seagrasses in those estuaries. And, so, and, ki and killed some. Yep. And so because of when the, when the rainfall fell, we also had the algal bloom happen in the summer once the temperatures warmed up. And there's some... And that bloom happened in, in the lake, in Lake Okeechobee, or it happened out in the marine environment? So it was both. There was a, an algal bloom in Lake Okeechobee, wasn't, which isn't terribly uncommon, um, but the blue-green algal bloom in the estuary and the extremeness of it was um, unusual. Um, real quick. Do you accept algal and algal? You do? I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. There's yeah. certain words. Yeah. Fungi, fungi. Tomato, algal, tomato. Algal. Yeah, I, so uh, you accept I'm, both. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I know what you're going for. Well, no. I dig, I'm dig. i digging algal. Yeah. But I grew up saying algal, and I'm trying to think if I should switch. <laughs> so I don't need to switch right now. I don't think so. Okay, I think cool. you're good where you are. So, yeah, explain the bloom. Because I don't think this is widely understood, like well, how something like this happens or why it happens. So the most recent information that I've seen on it was that the fresh water coming into the estuaries um, stressed the system that caused the algal bloom there. There's been some controversy about whether the algae came from the lake and ended up in the estuary, and that's what caused the bloom. Okay. And it may or may not be that. There's... Um, there's been discussion about whether how, what role septic tanks play in the in the situation there right? too, because then you would have within basin runoff basically in the St. Lucie contributing to those algal blooms. 
Um, but the most recent information that I've seen, um, and so this is subject to change, is that the freshwater stressed the estuary system, causing the already present algae there or uh, nutrients there to support an algal bloom there. So, Is there, uh, now I'm going to stack two more questions up. Can you explain to people what an estuary is? And then also, is there sort of a, like when you look at the bloom, right? And you'd be like, well, it could have started in the lake. It could have been influenced by uh, septic systems that were flooded out. Is there, are there implications of who owns the problem? Well, there's definitely controversy um, about that. And, you know, from from an ASA perspective, we approach... That's American Sport Fishing yes. Association perspective. We, we approach Everglades Restoration um, from the philosophy that we want to get this done as quickly as possible. And so we need to look at everything. Um, like I said, the research that's pointing to septic being a problem, um, it, it makes sense. I mean, we, we see that in North Florida where I'm from uh, with our springs and septic systems, that the, the higher levels of nutrients lead to algal blooms in the springs. And so from that perspective, it makes sense. But I also recognize that discharges coming out of Lake Okeechobee are a significant contributing factor. And so we need to look at all of it. Um, I remember when the lake I grew up on, you know, those companies that uh, like True Green or, or yeah. companies that come to when the that caught on. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a little kid, if you looked around our lake, it was all, it looked like just summer cottages and people had houses that were set back up in the trees away from the lake and no one, and there weren't yards. Right. It was just, just you know, it was like kind of like a lot of white pine and oak and people just had what looked like forest litter mm -hmm. generally. And over time it became more of a bedroom community and people started, they'd take down the cabin and build a much bigger house, much close to the water and put in lawns and then lawn care services caught on. What, in, a, in, a, in a microcosm <laughs> level, what that did to the to the lake, yeah, catastrophic, is unbelievable. Yeah. All that fertilizer. Well, they had, and, and so it even goes beyond septic tanks. I know in um, Tallahassee, they actually traced. Y'all may have heard of Wakulla Springs. It's like an iconic international spring. It's where they film creature from the Black Lagoon. Way back no, when. no, I have never heard of that. Um, Edward Ball um, with uh, Saint Joe. Um, kind of the big benefactor of that but anyway um they've actually traced nutrients from the city of tallahassee sewer spray field into wakala springs and so the city went back and reworked um, how they were actually dealing with their sewage much less septic tanks um, that it would travel that far um, so i think a lot of it has to do with the, kind of the florida geography it's all very porous limestone based and so things it's like, move <laughs> i know it, it's kind of amazing like the sort of the the, the flatness mm -hmm. that you can just decide to send water that you'd even have the option right to be like oh this lake drains south We're, we could move it to the south west or east yeah well that's why it took a year right i, th I think it's i want to say it's like a six inch difference in elevation i mean that's why because you're you're basically almost moving horizontal but just with a very very slight yeah it's like a whole state made out of uh marine limestone right yeah just old seashells exactly um Oh, I wanted you too. We're gonna to get back on track. But tell people what an estuary is, because so, I think a lot of people live in a lot of people live in the middle of the country. Like it's just not a term. May not they, know. Yeah. yeah. It's not a term so it's with. it's basically where a river empties into a saltwater body, and so you end up with this mixing of fresh and saltwater. So you have brackish areas, 
Um, the one that the, that the St. Lucie in, enters into is the Indian River Lagoon because um, there's kind of some outer barrier islands there that kind of provide this really protected um, environment. And um, much like Florida Bay, um, the, the brackish environment is a really important nursery area for marine life species. Oh, it's kind of amazing. Like, yeah. As far as, and then like bird life. I mean, the estuaries, it's such a unique. It's where it's at. One that makes this unique ecosystem. But my God, it's like this melding of, it's like this melding of the land and the sea and salt and fresh. Yeah. And it seems like as far as just like biomass of creatures. Well, in North Florida, I mean, it's where you have alligators and oysters all in the same area and sharks. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating place. Now I lost track of our main thing though. <laughs> yes. Take us oh, back the, to where we bloom, were. The bloom. The bloom. And ASA. So from, from the sport fishing association perspective, you guys aren't super interested in being like, well, it was his, their fault. It was their fault. Yeah. We don't want to point the finger. We just want to find the solution. Um, and you know, I guess sometimes that does involve finger pointing, sure. um, but really trying to work together and bring people together um, to come up with solutions is kind of our focus. Do you ever look at the whole thing and think like, my God, how could it be that like, we want to make sure there's a, a good resource of fish, right? That it would wind up being that as you, you know, you always hear like, like as you enter that, you wind up in like a rabbit hole, right? There's a lot of rabbit so, holes. Yeah, it's like, no, no, I'm just talking, we, we want a whole bunch of fish around. So what's that going to entail? And you're like, well, let me look into it. And you wind up realizing that it winds up having a lot to do with sort of like engineering and giant earthenworks in American history. And so much of it in Florida has to do with water quality and population growth. I mean, it's not just a marine fisheries issues. We talk, talked a little bit about springs. We've got a huge network of lakes that are... I mean, Lake Okeechobee is internationally renowned bass fishing destination, and they hold multiple tournaments there every year up in North Florida, Central Florida. I mean, it's just, I think because of kind of the Swiss cheese nature of the underlyings of the state, um, there's a huge amount of resources and um, that are impacted by water quality. And, and that, that, I mean, our coral reefs are being dramatically impacted by water quality. I just got an earful from some deer hunters. Really? Is Who? that Everglades related? Or, yep. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. A, a earful from deer hunters. <laughs> I have no doubt. And it doubt. was all about <laughs> who's moving what water where. Where, yep. Because. Because it was too high for too long. and Moving I mean, deer and they're drowning deer here and, and drying out deer there. Yep. And I was kind of asking these guys, sort of like, well, historically, right? If you could go back, like, what did the deer picture look like? And it's it's been like the Everglades situation. The water has been so confused for so long. It's hard to remember what it, it doesn't used to seem, be. <laughs> there's, there's not like a sort of uh, like the baseline isn't well known. Yeah, I would say probably the 40s were when because that was kind of when they did the Central and South Florida project, which was um, where the Corps came in and installed all of the dikes and canals and water control structures and all the water conservation areas and all of that was done um, after the dike. Um, so you had Tamiami Trail, then the dike, then the CNSF project. Um, so I think if you went back there, you could probably find relatively good information, but there's there's, there's not a lot of those folks around still. So. Yeah, so someone like being born today and just becoming interested in the out of doors and like interested in hunting and fishing, um, it almost becomes like here, it almost 
probably becomes like somewhat of an irrelevant question of like, what did it used to look like? Because it's just not much of a chance. Yeah, I think it's more what can we do to get it back um, so that we don't have this kind of cyclical up and down um, series of stressful events on the system. So what, okay, imagine for a minute that there's no, that there's unlimited budgets mm-hmm. and absolute public will. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. What needs to happen? Uh, money needs to happen. No, so the money's, money's, uh, no, just, money's no issue. Just, just as an exercise. Okay. Let's, okay. Uh, as an exercise to start out. Let's right. say that there's And what do we need to do to restore Money's this, no basically. issue. And every person in Florida is like, Let's my go. number one priority is fixing the system. Yeah. So we need to, um, we need to have storage, extensive water storage around the lake. Um, around were, the lake, but not in the lake. Well, because the lake is storage, so we need to be able to take the water that comes in and move it around and clean it and then direct it where it needs to go. Ideally, you wouldn't have any water needing to be discharged out the St. Lucie River on the East Coast. You would want to maintain some connection to the Caloosahatchee because sometimes they do have drought situations where they actually need water put in. And we have um, two projects that are working, uh, reservoirs that are working on those parts of the system. They're planning storage on the northern side of the lake and also water quality treatment so that we can take all of that water that's coming in from the Kissimmee River and hold back some of it okay. um, and clean it before it gets to the but lake. That would be a lake, like you're, like you're making another mini, lake. Yes, and, and so some of that's to make up for the fact that the water's not coming in as slowly as it used to, right? Um, we have more runoff, basically, than we used to. Because, because of, of devel- Because of development. Okay. Um, and modifications that we've made to the system over time. And then to the south, um, they're working on planning a southern reservoir and and um, and treatment. Water quality treatment is really important. But this would, these things would look like water treatment facilities or to the untrained eye, you would think there's a, a, a big shallow lake. Yeah, I think you would know that it's a reservoir just because it would have more of a regular shape, but the ones that are in place right now, there's stormwater treatment areas, which are a little bit different than a reservoir. They're uh, operated at a little bit shallower level, but uh, recreational access is allowed to all of those. Um, And I know um, with the Southern Reservoir Project that's in the planning phases right now, um, they're looking at allowing fishing and hunting and those types of activities on the lake, which is great. So then once you get below that, we need to take out all of the dike and canal systems that we've put in. We so undo, undo undo Herbert Hoover. Well, no, the dike's going to have to stay because people live there. So unless you want to move those people out, the dike has to stay. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of where the reservoirs come in because you can discharge from the lake into the reservoirs instead of having to have that sheet flow in the ag- agricultural area south of the lake. Okay. So we remove the kind of what we would term barriers to flow, the canals and the structures. We maintain protection for the southeast coast of Florida where it's developed. Um, We bridge Tamiami Trail, which when it was constructed was a great idea because it allowed you to get from the east coast of Florida to the west coast of Florida in a straight shot. The unfortunate thing is it's a second dike, basically, um, preventing water from going south into Everglades National Park. And so they're working on bridging it so that the water can move under it. Okay. And then you take so it right into Everglades National Park. So that right now, that trail, mm-hmm. it's just a big elevated structure that functions as a... It's <coughs> a road. It's a highway. Just functions as a, as a dam, though. Yes. Well, they've finished, I think, a one-mile section. 
they're working on a second section, and then I think there's two other sections that have to be bridged, basically, to allow that. To allow more water to mm -hmm. go yeah. through. Um, and then um, that would take water down into Florida Bay. Um, beyond that, there's still a couple of um, areas that still probably need some attention to get kind of the full force of water, fresh water that we actually need in Florida Bay to maintain the salinity. Since we've been sitting in east and west, we haven't been sitting a whole lot south. Um, and and beyond that, that, that's all you're looking at. That's it? That's only about $20 billion. <laughs> 20, no problem. $20 billion. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and that has to be coordinated between the state and the federal government. So I want to get to that, why that won't. I want to get to the reality now that we explored like what needs to happen with unlimited funding and, and public will. Right. Um, you hear that half of the Everglades are gone. Yep. If in this scenario you just laid out, like if it is done to completion, does that fix some of that or is half the Everglades just still gone? I don't think you can recover the half that's okay. gone. So, so when we have say, to focus on the half that's left. When they say gone, they mean gone to development. development. That can't be re regained. Okay. Yeah. You need to look at it from a glass half full. Where, what, how can we fix the part that's still there? So we're not going to, we're not looking to regain. We're just looking to salvage and preserve. And what, restore. And restore really, what we have. The flow is what we're really talking about. And that will go a long way to... Uh, restoring kind of the natural balance in that system where, you know, you have the tree islands and you have the sheet flow in certain parts of it and you have the freshwater flows into Florida Bay and not have those, um, you know, traumatic discharges to the <coughs> east and the west. Is, can I have a question? No. Uh -uh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's very complicated, and that's kind of the hard part about it. Oh, yeah. Well, my yeah. mind's buzzing just like with all these other ideas. Like, yeah, it's like you're talking what if about. We dig a canal. <laughs> yeah. Another canal here. We'll go get a shovel from the Home Depot and get, get it all fixed up this afternoon. But no, it seems like you're. Um, and I understand that, like, kind of like the idea of what's been done has been done, and you can't change certain things. But that development that causes, and I'm guessing a lot of it is just like concrete and asphalt, right? That just causes fat water to get places faster. Right. Do you ever think that people will look innovatively that way and, and just say, you know what, maybe instead of concrete, there's going to be this other thing that we start driving on around in Florida or building houses on in Florida so that I know. kind of attack it at like the beginning right. as opposed to halfway down. Like the holistic approach. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, that would be ideal. Um, I don't know realistically how that would play out since there are so many people in South Florida. Right. It, it would be a huge undertaking. Um, you know, some of the steps that um, Martin County, which is where uh, Stewart is and St. Lucie River, have taken to talk about fertilizer runoff because septic tanks and fertilizers are kind of um, that component that we were talking about that um, contributed to the algal bloom just trying to get folks aware of, you know, hey, my green grass is is having some impacts on the system. And I mean, that retraining the public is, is definitely a challenge, mm -hmm. um, but they're going back to revisit, you know, kind of that whole public awareness campaign and, and how do we do that? So that's I wouldn't say that's off the table, but I don't know how significant of an impact you would have just because of the challenges and trying to implement it. I think that those public 
kind of like public sacrifice, public awareness campaigns do work over time. Because I'll talk to people who live in areas like like in the, around the Colorado, you know, the Colorado River, right? It's a whole other mm-hmm. issue where very complex issue about water allocation, where water goes. Yeah. And um, like I'll have friends who say like, man, if you water your lawn in my neighborhood, you're ostracized. <laughs> right. You're ostracized from the community. If you're, on an, if you're watering on an off day in, in Florida, you're you Yeah, people will be like, yeah. it really like takes hold. And people are kind of like, all right, let's just all agree. All of our grass is yeah. brown in the summer. Yeah. And let's just make it that the, the way that green grass used to be a status symbol. Let's accept that brown grass is now a status symbol in the summer. And when you have green grass, you're the guy that used to have brown grass. Right. You're right. like the outlier. Yeah. And it, it's like you can like public sort of public awareness, awareness. and public opinion shifts as people just. If you can turn just, it, it's powerful. I agree. And and when it's like willful compliance. Yeah. Then it becomes more palatable to people. Well, and I think if you can some generate of that, willful compliance. Some of that is a st- kind of a reestablishing that connection, I think, with with nature. I mean, it's so funny. I, I make it down here several times a year. And I mean, I live in Tallahassee, which is a pretty well-developed city. Um, but I come down here and I'm just always amazed at the network of roads and concrete and structures. And and when you go to the Everglades, I mean, there's like a wall, a, a dividing yeah. line. And you're like, over here, Everglades, over here, obviously not Everglades. Um, right. You know, just... it, is, it is remarkable. There's no, there's no bleed. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't think a lot of people cross over that line. Um, and so there's a lot of folks that just aren't aware Um of, of kind of what's going on and what the impacts are. If they don't fish, if they're, you know, not out on the water a lot, if they're just kind of living their lives, there's not really a daily awareness of what's going on. Uh, there's two forms of, una- there's two forms of unawareness. Um, one I understand and one's troubling to me. <laughs> there's the form of unawareness that you're just like blithely unaware. Okay. Right. That, for whatever reason, like who you surround yourself with or how you live your life, whatever, you, just, you just haven't heard yet. Okay. And that's the kind where you're like, okay, that's a failure. Like that lack of awareness is a failure sort of of the system or it's, you're just speaking to just a human, like human attributes. There's at least an opportunity to inform. Yeah. And yeah. they're just like, oh, no one told me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Right. I will now start taking yes. like without overly inconveniencing myself. Now yeah. that I understand, I will start taking some minor steps toward helping the bigger picture. Right. Like there's that kind of person. Then there's the kind of person who's real aware. They know, but they're like, damned if I'm gonna inconvenience myself in service of this thing. Yeah. Because the real blame lies with so and so. Yeah. That's the troubling version. But Okay, you now you don't have all the money in the world and you don't have total public support. But people are still trying to do to accomplish the end result of what you're getting at. Yeah. Where does it stand? Like, where does it stand? What needs to happen? Well, I think it's frustrating that we don't have we're, we're not seeing, um, I guess, the, the positive benefits of all of the efforts to date. And, and I think a lot of that is but we're not seeing that. Not yet. Um, I think that um, we're we're poised to see a lot of that. Um, there's this mind-boggling schedule of 68 projects um, that combined make up the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan, and and that kind of timeline is called the integrated delivery schedule. If anybody just really wants to watch their eyes cross, you can Google that um, and take a look at it. 
but we're pretty far along. Um, when you look at all those projects, we've at least started planning almost everything in this whole 30-year timeline. So SERP, to use the um, the short uh, short-term version of Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan was authorized in the year 2000. So it was initially envisioned as a 30-year plan, basically, to restore this. It took us 100 years to screw it up this bad. How can we go back and fix it? And it projects are moving a lot of dirt. I mean, it's basically reconstructing South Florida. Um, and you're talking about 2,000 square miles. That, that's a lot, of, a lot of dirt to move. Um, and granted, we don't have to touch every corner of that, but we have to touch a lot of it. Um, and then you have um, negotiations between the state and federal government on how that's going to be done because they share the costs on those projects uh, as an even split. They're supposed to share it 50-50. They're supposed how to. How is that decided? Like, like how, how is it decided, like, oh, some of this is your problem, Florida? Well, I think the feds thought that they were doing it for us, and but yeah, they were the ones that actually did it. And so I certainly wasn't a fly on the wall for those conversations, but but that was the agreement that was reached. And, um, you know, Florida has really stepped up to the plate, especially in recent years. They've appropriated over $200 million annually for their portion of SERP. Um, plus, they've appropriated um, the money to pay the state's portion of the money to pay for that reservoir on the southern side of Lake Okeechobee already um, that hasn't even been approved by Congress yet. So, so Florida's ahead of the feds on getting the very money, far getting ahead. their share, of the, their agreed upon share of the money. Yeah, I heard um, Congressman Francis Rooney um, estimate that he thought that um, from what he'd seen that Florida was about a billion dollars ahead of the federal government in their. Um, appropriations for Everglades restoration. Well, what does it cost? Uh, I, I hesitate to even bring it up. I was going to ask, like, <laughs> when you take, the, what is the fixed cost, so the cost of fixing it, compared to the cost of not fixing it? Yeah. Well, and that's a hard number to pin down. Because people, like, don't, I know people's brains don't really work that way, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, if you think that, if you look at just from a fishing perspective, and so that doesn't, count tourism or real estate values or um loss of life yeah, potentially yeah. yeah and there actually have been some documented health um conditions from the algal bloom that happened um at the coast so you know i don't know how you put a number on that but it's definitely significant particularly when you put it i mean not that 15 to 20 billion dollars is chump change but 9.6 billion dollars a year just from sport fishing in florida and granted not all of that's in south florida yeah but a lot of it's focused there and yeah not not all of it's in south florida not all of it is is reliant on this right but but just to put those numbers in, and that's annually i mean to put those numbers in perspective yeah it's it, it we're we're suffering significantly and that's why it's so important for us to move it try to get it done quicker than 30 years. So really, you know, walking the halls of Congress and, you know, trying to make folks aware of how important this is from a national perspective. I mean, it's it's a national treasure that Everglades is. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. There's no place else in the world like it. It's the world's largest restoration project that's ever been attempted. So Oh, really? Yes. And how many pro how again, how many projects need to happen? So there's 68 total. And they need and, and but but they all need to happen in concert. Well, they but, have to happen in a certain order. So, for example, building a reservoir without a way to get water either to or from the reservoir doesn't really 
accomplish anything because the reservoir is just going to fill up. And so kind of trying to think through sequentially, okay, if I, I need to do this first before I do that, because from an engineering perspective and a water movement perspective, that's how it best makes sense. But when I say they need to happen in concert, they all like, like the project is the project, but there's 68 components. Like, like you would never say like, I'm building a house. You never say like, I have 120 projects underway. Right. You'd be like, I'm building a house. Now, what that involves is like foundation, framing, plumb. Okay. So is, do, do any of the projects like as freestanding projects, do they wind up being helpful or does it, or does it become that these all need to come online? I think some are different than others. So um, Kissimmee River restoration is almost complete. Um, that's the northern, that's north of the lake. And that just in and of itself could be beneficial. Right. Okay. Because right. that benefits not only the Everglades, but that benefits the Kissimmee River Basin. All right. So, so you could feasibly be like, stop there, but enjoy some payoff from it. Yeah. But some of them do need to be done in concert. And so um, what they did, because things were moving so slowly, they kind of took a subset of the projects that that were thought to be the most beneficial, that would basically give you the biggest bang for the buck, and packaged them together, went through the planning process, which is very extensive with the Army Corps of Engineers. Oh, and probably like all the environmental impact work. And yep. Then, yeah. Um, and then has to be authorized by Congress. So anyway, they package these together in what they call the Central Everglades Planning Project. Okay. And so this is the area between um, between Lake Okeechobee and Everglades National Park. That would be the Central Everglades. And so we have this whole kind of mishmash of canals and levees and all of that sort of thing. We need to increase conveyance how, how, so that we can move water south instead of sending it into a canal to shoot it out to, to tide. Um, and we also need storage. And so anyway, they packaged all those together. We finally were able to get those authorized in 2016 um, as SEP is what it's called. Um, and so it has to be authorized by Congress, but we're still waiting on federal appropriations, so the actual money to get it done. So they'll uh, Congress will authorize it, but not necessarily at that moment. Give you the money. Carve out the money. Yeah, that comes it. in the budget to the Army Corps of Engineers um, at a later time. Now the state can start on their part, and they have um, of SEP, and they they've actually started work on that, trying to um, do the part that's theirs. Have has the will to tackle the problem gone up or down in the last year? I think from a state perspective. I'm talking federal. Okay. Well, but even our federal, like our congressional delegation, so our congressmen and our um, senators, I think are very, um, very united in, in knowing that Everglades restoration, even I mean, statewide, that they get it and in a, this in, a is bi important. in a bipartisan way absolutely okay absolutely the the trouble comes when you have uh, well we, we've seen the budget challenges at the federal level um continually in fact i think we're having one this week yep. um and so trying to focus 49 other states on one state's problem um, is a challenge because again you're talking about a, a pie it's only so big and how are we going to divide that up and so the federal government is typically um, at l less than half of the appropriation of what Florida is on an annual basis. I think it was like 76 um, million was the last number. Now, and the dike is separate from that because that's more of a flood control public safety issue. Okay. Um, but just for restoration projects, um, it, it's challenging.
Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Decked Drawer Systems. Their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing. I have been using a deck system for years. I would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it. You can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. Who are the who are the losers of the of, of the whole restoration thing? Like who, who 
when you look at the current restoration plan, you say it like has bipartisan support. The state likes it. Your federal de- your, your your state's delegation to Washington D.C. likes it. Who are the people or, or industries or whatever who look and they're like, yeah, you know, not real keen on this plan. Mm-hmm. I think there's been um, some challenge. Well, so there's a lot of politics involved, and as with everything, um, you know, it's not just about restoration. It's it's not just about an environmental project that needs to be taken care of. So there's politics involved. And so um, politically, um, you know, the, I think the, the folks in the agricultural area have felt targeted at some times. Okay. Um, and I think that that creates a lot of conflict in how we get things done. Um, political leaders change um, and then political will changes. We saw that Governor Bush um, had um, an accelerate, what he called an accelerate plan to move projects along. And then we had a change in administration and the new governor wanted to take a different direction. And, and that's certainly their prerogative. But, you know, when you're talking about the scope of a 30-year project to change, um, you know, kind of to change direction every eight years or so is going gonna, is gonna to cause challenges, at least at the state level. And you have similar turnover at the federal level as well um, with the Army Corps of Engineers having changeover in, in who's overseeing the project. Okay. You have changeover in the committees um, and, and trying to elevate the importance of Everglades beyond the perception that it's just a Florida project. And so that was when I was talking initially, you know, yeah, it is a Florida project, but it has national significance, not only just from the fact that it's an environmental wonder of the world, but also because of the economic impact that it has on industry that is outside of this state that relies on having access to, you know, abundant fisheries and clean water. Um, and so, you know, you have somebody in Michigan who has a manufacturing plant who's making engine parts for a boat motor. And if, if, if folks aren't buying boats in Florida because the water is terrible, then, then Michigan's going to feel it. And so yep. trying to kind of draw those correlations um, is, is, what we've been trying to focus on to kind of raise the profile of Everglades restoration beyond it being just a Florida issue. Without getting yourself in trouble, can you explain to me why you hear when, when, when there's a conversation about the Everglades, there's always a conversation about the sugar industry. Mm-hmm. Can you explain like why, how does the sugar, how does sugar cane production find its way into every conversation around the Everglades? Let's see. Um, well, that whole Everglades agricultural area, it's not just sugar, but they okay. are probably one of the largest landowners in that area. Okay. And there's several different companies. Um, and I mean, when you look at a map, I mean, you see Lake Okeechobee, you see the Everglades agricultural area, and then you see the rest of the Everglades. And so I think it's a natural, um, you know, it's a natural reaction to, to see that, the EAA basically and say, well, if we just got rid of that, we could make it all work. Gotcha. Um, and so it's just that that area happens to foster, there's a lot of sugar production in that area. Because it was very fertile farmland. I mean, that was kind of, you know, that was right outside of the lake. And so you had this kind of like fertile soil from when the lake would overflow. And it was, it was a natural agricultural area, but there's a lot of other stuff that's growing there besides sugar. Um, I, I think the conflict comes, um, you know, they're property owners, and so they have property rights. And um, and so the conflict comes, I think, between um, folks who are very passionate about restoring the Everglades 
and seeing that land as kind of the roadblock to it and well we should just be able to to fix it and get rid of that and and then you have to balance that with the fact that their property owners they are um, they have taken significant steps to um, help with uh, nutrient runoff from their properties and I'm not trying to defend anybody. That's just kind of my take on what I've seen in the yeah. conversations um, as to why it's such a, a conflict. Why you hear about it so much. Mm-hmm. Moving more south, mm-hmm. just to touch on another, like just to hit all the conflicts. There's a lot of them. Fishing access. Yeah. Okay. So places where you are and are not allowed to fish is something you hear about a lot down here. Can you kind of like sketch out sort of the conversations around um, prohibiting recreational fishing in certain waterways and what they hope to gain from that, what's lost with those decisions? Are you talking about more from a coastal perspective, not so much Everglades? Yeah, coastal perspective. Yeah, so there's a lot of concern, I think, globally about um, the the condition of coral reefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a really significant coral reef tract off, Southeast Florida, it runs from um, Stewart and Martin County all the way down um, into the Florida Keys. And the Florida Keys has National Marine Sanctuary um, that kind of oversees most of what's going on down there kind of as a blanket um, communicator. But a, in a, a lot of um, the area north of that hasn't received as, as much attention. And there's been a really significant coral disease outbreak there. Um, they're, they're not under, they don't really understand exactly um, the extent of it. Um, they're doing surveys right now. They don't necessarily understand where it came from. Could be tied um, to the acidification of the... There, you know, globally, when you look at impacts to coral reefs, water quality is probably number one, okay. which could be acidification. It could be sediment that's settling on things. It could be, um, you know, that you've disturbed one area and somehow you've stirred up a disease that was kind of in the sediment and now has become waterborne and spreads, which okay. is kind of the the thought process that I've heard as to what's happened in Southeast Florida there. Well, the thing we know for certain is, is coral reefs dying. Yeah, and, and I think worldwide um, there has been a push for, um, for area closures to help preserve these areas. And, um, you know, I think in some instances it's probably a good idea. In fact, um, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is talking today about the Dry Tortugas uh, Research Natural Area, which is um, out off the coast of South Florida down here, past Key West. And and that area is closed to fishing. Um, and there were some really good reasons why they did it. There was a confluence of currents. It's got excellent water quality. Um, it's somewhat remote. You have multiple um, important fish species that use that area as a spawning ground and the currents are able to take the, the eggs um, in other locations. So it's, in addition to that, there's actually ongoing research in the area. So you have people actively looking at that place and looking at the impacts um, to make sure that what they're doing is working, also using it for research purposes to see, okay, what kind of impacts do these closed areas have? Um, And you have ongoing law enforcement that's engaged in making sure that the regulations are being enforced, quite frankly. Um, You know, just because you have a rule or a a law or regulation doesn't mean that people are going to abide by it. And so kind of all of those factors together, um, you know, have led to an area that's closed to fishing that makes sense. Um, One of the proposals um, 
that has come up um, as far as the Southeast Florida coral reef tract is to close 20 to 30% of it to fishing and boating access. And the idea being that we have this stressed reef in other places around the world, we've seen that when we close areas to fishing access, they kind of act like a reserve basically that the fish can go to um, and, and have some protection there. And then that spills over into the surrounding areas. The yeah, like you might close the area, but not see it, but not see like a decline of the resource that it's putting out. Yeah, and I think um, in other places that that could make sense. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's the, the jury's still out. I've seen a lot of mixed research on how effective what they would call a no-take marine protected area um, is in, in achieving that goal. Um, I think in areas, particularly with corals, where you're talking about protecting um, herbivores like paired fish to keep algae down off of, of reefs, that can be an important component. Um, but in Florida, we have really stringent fishing regulations. Um, and, you know, from a stock-wide perspective, um, we don't see a lot. We might see some localized depletions where there are, you know, areas of a he heavy effort. Um, but from a stock-wide perspective, you know, we don't have, we don't have issues with parrotfish populations. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of our um, sport fish are in really, really good shape. And so um, from our perspective, you really need a good reason um, to justify why you're going to close it down. And you need to try other stuff first um, because fishing is so important in Florida. I mean, if we're seeing localized depletions in a certain area, well, you know what, then then let's decrease the bag limit there. We don't need to shut, shut it down to everything as the knee-jerk reaction. So yeah. I, I think... Um, I think there's been some, you know, when you look at it from, like I said, a global perspective and a, a no-take area can make sense. But I think you also need to try other things first, particularly here in the states where we have, um, you know, such strong regulations already in place from a federal and a state perspective. So, so the main way to help the fisheries here would be more habitat level. I think that's a like, lot of in it. In a big general sense, more like whole picture habitat level fixes rather than stopping fishing. Yeah, I think because I think a lot of what you see are you know, going back to water quality. I mean, it it really is that really is kind of the linchpin and all of it. And and the the challenge is is that it's not easy to fix. Um, you know, there are a lot of different sources of um, runoff, of pollution, of sedimentation. You know, we're also you know, we've got um, uh, huge um, barge traffic and port traffic, and you have to try to balance, and, and I don't know that we necessarily understand all of what goes into those developments, but you've got to balance, you know, the, the development with the resource. Tricky. It is tricky. And it's not easy, and I, th I think that's why, um, you know, I think when you look at at closing off an area of fishing, well, that's something easy and concrete that I can do today. Um, the problem is, is that if you don't address the real elephant in the room of water quality, you're not going to achieve the goal that you want. Yeah, you could damage that industry and still wind up with things going downhill. Exactly. Exactly. We covered a lot. <laughs> an immense amount.
Y'all got it all figured out now, right? You got, oh, I, to, I totally <laughs> okay, get it good. now, man. I totally get good. it now. Like, so I'm you can take to, my I'm, job. I'm ready, to go to, I'm ready to go down to the store and get me some shovels and pickaxes. Um, <laughs> That'll work. Is there anything we didn't get to that you want to get to? Um, you know, I think, I hope that we've gotten the message across that um, I know y'all have listeners across the nation and mm-hmm. the world. And, you know, what What can they do and why should they do something for, yeah, that's for all, Everglades pe- people, Yeah, people, uh, we get a lot of, when we're talking about issues, we get a lot of people who are like, but what do I do? Yeah, and, and I think that that's what I always like to leave people with because I think part of the frustration with Everglades Restoration is that people feel like they can't do anything, that it's this... You know, oh, I would get whole that, bureaucratic I would mess. get that feeling. I'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'd rather just go work on another issue. Yeah, there's this whole bureaucratic mess, and it's completely out of my hands, and there's nothing I can do. And, I, you know, we have 3 million anglers that come to Florida, either visiting or resident every year. That's a lot of people that come to our state to visit, and, and so they're obviously not from Florida. Um, you know, they can call their congressman and their senator and their state and say, hey, you know, this isn't a – Michigan or an Iowa or a Seattle specific issue, but you need to support it. And, and here's why and, and lay it out for them, you know, that it's the national treasure that I go there to fish and I want to see this preserved um, and restored to what it could and should be to, to keep this tragedy from happening again. That's the thing that I try to put forth, like an idea I try to get um, hunters and anglers on board with. Is it like, an attack against one is an attack against all. Exactly. And, and, and some groups do that well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that when it comes to like gun rights. Yeah. Right. People look at an attack against one as an attack against all. Right. But I think that when it comes to habitat issues. You're like, yeah, that's not in my yard. <laughs> we're good at being like, we're really good at being really insular. Yeah. yeah. And like provincial, you know, and, and just sort of viewing like, well, I'm kind of worried about my little spot. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I'm going to go down to the county deer commission and give them a earful. And then we go home. But yeah, (laughs) but they're not, but they, but they don't like, they're not looking at the big, huge picture. Right. Because, but even in this case, what's interesting about Florida though, is here, everybody does. I grew up, we came down and fished Florida. We came every year to fish in Florida. Yeah. Drive down. Typically we drive down in a motor home and camp on the beach, get sunsick. Yep. Fish in Florida. It's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, <laughs> that's the good life, right millions there. Millions <laughs> of people. So it's not even like a, for for millions of Americans. It's not like you're not doing this sort of generous act. You can still keep it selfish. Well, you don't even have to be and a fisherman su- to, to be. I mean, go to the beach. I mean, if you just come down as a tourist, um, you don't want to see algae six inch thick in in the water. It, it really makes it distasteful and. I remember standing on the beach here one time a couple of years ago. So my kids are three, five, and seven. Mm-hmm. And standing on the beach right before our three-year-old was born. And I see what I think is like a pot of rays mm-hmm. maybe coming down the beach. When I realize they're just like traveling in a way that rays don't. Right. And, uh, and my kids are just out in angle deep water. And just right within arm's reach, these manatees come by. Oh, how cool. Just blew their mind, man. Very cool. Blew their mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just see that. like, And you're not like, <laughs> you, you know, I've seen them like in, in the, in, out in the mangroves and stuff in Belize and elsewhere. But just on this beach where as far as you look one way and as far as you look the other way, it's hotels and sand. Yeah. But to think like that. The manatees build a, are still there. But to build a place <laughs> where that can coexist, where yeah. they're traveling from one, you know, one estuary or whatever to another. And have them come blowing by. I mean, it kind of like it makes a believer out of you to well, see something like that. Well, and I think you make a good point. I mean, I think as um, you know, as despairing as it can seem when you look at it 
from this side, seeing how far we still have to go. Um, not only can we help shorten that timeline so it's not quite so far, but we can look at the successes that we've already had. And manatees are certainly one. We were talking about American crocodiles earlier um, before we started on yeah, this. Yeah, and I was guilty of thinking that we didn't have American yeah, crocodiles no. anymore. But it winds up being that they went from being federally listed as endangered and got upgraded. Yeah, they're a great As much as an upgrade as this, got upgraded to threatened, <laughs> which is like a nice move. It's a move in the right direction. It's better than being moved from threatened to endangered. To endangered, exactly. And we have, um, you know, black bear. I mean, we have a lot of things in the state that we that have come back um, through through public involvement in this process. And um, so I think there is hope. I, I think the, the, the take-home news is there is hope um, for Everglades restoration. And, and I think we have a lot of projects that are going to be coming online in the next five years or so that are going to have a big impact. And we just need to finish the last few to kind of bring it to the finish line. And then look to see, you know, how is this working? Where else can we tweak it? Because it's not going to be 100%. It was never designed to be 100% fix. Um, there's always going to be things that you see once you're on the ground that, you know what, we might need to tweak this a little bit. Or, you know, if we did this one little project over here, um, the South Florida Water Management District has already done that with several projects that they've taken on by themselves apart from the federal government to kind of tweak it to have a, a maximum benefit for a minimal cost. So the, the, the part about people getting involved in some way they want to get involved, you say, call your representatives. Mm hmm. Tell them we need money. I mean, Say, that's hey, really. Man, I like to fish in Florida. My my brother in law likes to fish in Florida. Yeah, you got to help that guy out. Yep. Send some money down there. Exactly. Um, because when they get to the appropriations, which you know is divvying up the money um, for the Army Corps of Engineers, there's 50 other states that have significant projects. Um, one other thing, one other funding opportunity that's kind of on, hopefully on the more immediate horizon, is the disaster relief bill. Um, so that's as a result of all the hurricanes that we had, Texas, Tech, Puerto Rico and Florida. Uh, yeah. All three. Um, and that's, that's kind of sitting in the Senate right now. The house has already voted on it, but that would give $12 billion to the core. Um, and so granted that has to be divided between the, the three disaster states, but that could give some significant funding for the Corps to move forward on some Everglades projects quickly. So calling your senators and saying, we want you to take this up. You said it was twenty billion, right? So it's a fifth of your yeah. total right there. Yeah. Yep. And then I guess you could probably um help too come to Florida, do a little fishing. Always. Always. And and to put in another plug, you know, because of the hurricanes, you know, there were some significant impacts in, in the Florida Keys and uh, the southwest coast of Florida, Everglades City. And those are some of the best fishing um opportunities here in the state. And and those folks the guides especially really need folks to come down. Um, you know, it sometimes hotels can still be a challenge, but they're open, ready for business, and the fishing's great. So yeah, I would folks say folks do need to come. I would add to that. I, that's provisional. When I say that, come down and fish. It's provisional. Like if you're going to come down and fish, you need to owe, you owe it to yourself and others to take a minute to understand mm -hmm. what am I catching. Yeah. First, you start out by saying like you you need to force yourself to admit that you kind of love it, right? <laughs> I think a lot of people fish, but they never go like, and I love it. Yeah. So you say like, and I love it, and I want it to stick around. Where did the fish come from? Like, where did this, what exactly went into this fish existing here on Earth? Right. And when you start understanding that. How it's all connected. Then, then hopefully is, uh, advocacy is born. Well, it develops that relationship, right? Between yeah. the person and the, and the environment, so. 
it's better to do that than to be like, whatever the hell happened to that fish <laughs> in 20 years? Right. Guess I won't go to Florida now. <laughs> um, you guys got any final things? I'm going to book my trip now for 2025. Not that I'm not going to come back between <laughs> now and then, but it sounds like the fish is just going to get better and better. Well, I hope Call so. Call a hotel. I'd like yeah. to make a reservation in 2025. Well, I, you know, I think um, at least from a fishing perspective, a lot of the impacts that we see um, are temporary because it is a, you know, a, a, a finite event um, where we had the, the impacts from the discharges. But, you know, we've had two in a row. And so, you know, we're hoping that we don't continue to see that increase in frequency because that obviously would have more of a long term effect. Yeah, it'd be nice to get a break. Matt Cook, have you said anything yet? No. He's just been taking do you it have, all do, in. You got, you're, you're all like heads, <laughs> you're all head set it up. Um, you know, I've been bringing people down to South Florida for a long time. And, uh, you know, people obviously have enjoyed, you know, all of the the fruits of the environment, et cetera. And, you know, I've been very overwhelmed on, you know, the overall complexity of all of the issues. And we spent a lot of time with the locals and you know, everyone's got an opinion. It's refreshing to know that there's you know, the restoration plan in place and uh, the complexity, I don't think the rest of the U.S. truly understands all of the constituents and um, sh stakeholders, as you say, and uh, just appreciate your work. Well, thank you. Well, I, I think um, what, you, what your comments uh, brought up an interesting point. So stakeholders, it's not just the state and the federal government. There's actually another nation. We have tribal nations um, in the Everglades that are also involved in this process. Um, you have the Miccosukee and the Seminoles. So um, that kind of adds a whole nother complexity of trying to have actual international negotiations, if you will. Um, I think from the Everglades perspective, you know, we keep talking about restoration and I don't want folks to get the idea that it's this like blighted landscape um, you know, not worthy of, of, of seeing until it's fixed because it is, it is the most awe-inspiring place that I think I've ever been in the state of Florida, for sure, um, to see the vastness of it, even as it exists now, is truly overwhelming. And it, the, the miles of, of grass and water, I mean, it is truly a river of grass and, um, so even as it exists now, it's definitely worth a visit and a look to appreciate um, appreciate it as a wonder. It oh, really yeah, is. you totally get it looking at it. Yeah. It's, not, it's like a fixer-upper. It's not like a burned-down structure. Yeah, but I think when people think of, well, we got to restore it, you know, that it's just yeah. this. No, It's, like, it's a concrete down. jungle or something. No, no it's No, you come not. down, you're like, no, I get it, man. It's cool. I get it, and we need to, yeah, it's, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah. It's not like you're trying to, like, Say you're not you're not trying to get someone to sort of imagine its beauty. Its beauty still is right there, demonstrated. Yeah, we just want to make sure we can continue it and keep it long term. Well, so. And depending on who you're talk to, some people describe it as extremely sensitive, and then others that it has a resiliency to it that has withstood you know all the historical impacts that you talked about. So it's it's kind of hard to reconcile between both. Yeah, I think as much as we've messed it up, it is amazing that it is still there and still beautiful and still awe-inspiring. All right, Kelly Ralston. Oh, God, I, do you have time? I still have one last question. Absolutely. I just want to know what Dude, you're... I just, what, what, like, I, <laughs> all right. No, that's fine. Go ahead. Are I just, you, like, are you in a hurry? No, I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> okay. I just did that. I said her name like oh. in an endy way. Yeah. That's why you jumped oh. in. Yeah. <laughs> You sense um, you sense that. Yeah. The impending. Like, call me. 
<laughs> um, what do you? Uh, what species do you like to chase? And what's your next? I'm more of an inshore girl. Um, we're hoping to. Well, I will be down at Miami Boat Show um, coming up next week, which is put on by National Marine Manufacturers Association. Pretty amazing thing. Um, and then we're going to head down to the Keys and see what we can find. Uh, depending on the weather, we may try to go a little further offshore, but probably we'll be more inshore species. So love myself a snook. That's what you want to catch? Mm, they're yeah. my favorite. You like to eat them? I have not eaten so them. Would, I just you would can't not believe quite <laughs> bring myself. I know they taste all, from what everybody's told me. They're amazing. It's yes. unbelievable. Yes. Uh, yeah. One of the best things in the ocean. Yeah. I'm not advocating that run, everyone runs out there and kills a snook. Well, just follow your bag limits, man. Pay, yeah. In season. In season. Yeah. yeah, we had some real issues with snook um, back in 2010 when they had that really sustained um, cold weather event. Had a huge kill off. Is that Closed right? season. Um, Atlantic was less impacted than the Gulf side. Um, so, But we're finally now back into a cycle of having open season for snook. But you can catch them year-round. They're fun to catch. I was reading too. You're a fifth generation Floridian. I am. So you go back to like Cabeza de Vaca. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're I got I got Orange Grove folks back in Central Florida, and I've got uh, Bristol, Florida, which is up in the Panhandle, right around the Apalachicola River. They were farmers and used to ferry folks back and forth across the river. It's, How um, old were you when you caught your first fish? Do you remember? I think we probably went to Lake Hall in Tallahassee, so I was probably under ten. Okay. When I caught one there, and we used to get whiting down at the coast all the time. That was fry them up for breakfast. The Gulf Kingfish, man. Absolutely. Yeah, my kids, my kids get after them when we go to Florida. Yeah, so. those are those are good times. But yeah, so all that was when I was really young, and then um, kind of came back to it in graduate school. I actually worked on puffer fish of all things. So. In grad school, you did. Mm -hmm. Worked on um, well, the technical term is functional morphology. So you'd actually figure out how they were eating. And then you could use the patterns that you saw in the muscles and the um, skeletal structures to kind of look at evolution of fish feeding, which is kind of a cool thing. I recently read a, a structural morphology paper on the hinge functions of a largemouth bass. Really? Who the was the author by I chance? Remember, I might like, know them. <laughs> it was people studying, people who study like, like mechanical engineers yeah, looking at. Exactly. The kind of baffling hinge structure of a largemouth bass mouth. Yeah, we did that, um, but more from looking at muscle activity and how the the bones and the face were arranged. Um, but yeah, there's the mouth. There, the, a ba a largemouth bass's mouth can do some interesting stuff. Look at a slingjaw wrasse. That's even more amazing. Is that right? They can basically take their whole mouth and shoot it out underneath. Yeah. And then create like a ton of inward, like a ton of suction. Yeah, it's, it's suction pressure that. Basically, all right. I'm gonna say your name in an Andy way again. <laughs> okay, Andy way. Ready? Yep, ready. Kelly Ralston. No, that's a beginning way. Okay. No, I, I can't even do it now. Can you do it in an Andy way? <laughs> I threw have. him off. I nailed it a minute ago because a beginning. If I was beginning, I'd be like Kelly Ralston. Yes. But I want to end it some like uh, Kelly Ralston. No, that's, that's <laughs> no. beginning ish. Okay. Can you do it Andy way? I, I did it a minute ago. Yeah, you had us all. I can't yeah. think of how to do it. Well, you just edit well, it back in and you Kelly, can make it sound gonna, Indian. I'm going to clip that chunk out and pack <laughs> it in here. Thank you very much for joining us, Kelly Ralston. My pleasure. American Fish. Sport Fishing Association. Keep Florida fishing. Um, and if you keep Florida fishing, you're kind of keeping America fishing. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much.
Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you're looking for a thermal device that does pretty much everything on the planet, check out Pard Optics FT34 Thermal Front Clip-On. It is a game changer in thermal. It's a versatile three-in-one device with a quick detach mount for easy scope attachment eliminating the need for re-zeroing you know, every time you put it on. It offers features like one-shot zero, PIP mode, blind pixel correction, auto hot target tracking, Wi-Fi connectivity, and, this gets my kid very excited, video recording to a 128-gigabyte micro SD card. You can even use it as a compact handheld spotter for scouting. This unit does it all. Check out the FT34 as well as many other great optics at www.pard.com.